0: Many people today believe that there will be a great Jewish revival shortly before the return of Christ. One verse that specifically is used to support this claim is Romans 11 verse 26. But is this what Paul was writing about when he penned these words? Or has this verse been totally misunderstood? That's up next on The Dance of Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for being here with me today. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host on this wonderful day that God has made. He's made the good days and the bad days, so whatever day you happen to be going through, I hope that you're clinging close to the Lord, especially in these times that we're living in. We are living in the end times, I believe, and possibly in that generation that we'll see the Lord's return. So cling close to the Lord. If you're having a good day, then thank God. Thank God for all the blessings that you have, and remember that so many people are not blessed unfortunately, there are so many people suffering, so many children suffering in the world, and if you are suffering, if you're going through something difficult, ask God for help, ask God for guidance, remember so many verses like romans eight twenty nine that says that God works all things for the good, for those who love and trust in him, and so ultimately we must remember that God has made both days the good and the bad, and so I hope you're having a good day, but either way,- today we are Jumping back into an end times topic, I actually wasn't planning on doing this. I was planning on starting the Trinity series this week. So if you were looking forward to that, then look forward to it for next week, because that's when we're going to start, Lord willing. But I realized that there was this topic that I did not address in my end times series, which we just finished. And it's actually a pretty monstrous topic. It's a very big topic because it's a verse that seems to deal with end times things. And the the topic specifically that it deals with, which is basically potentially a Jewish revival in the future, is used as a foundation, as one of the key foundations of teachings like dispensationalism, premillennialism, even postmillennialism. So a lot of people believe that what we're going to be talking about today, the verse, the Romans 11, verse 26, and obviously the whole chapter, is talking about end times events, meaning something that's going to happen shortly before the return of Christ, very far in the future, obviously, that sort of thing. And And it's a big topic because when you read these verses, which we will, we'll read all the way through the chapter, and we'll break it down today verse by verse. When you read it initially, it seems that it is talking about such a thing. And if that's the case, that can lead to a lot of confusion. It can lead to a lot of confusion. It can lead to a lot of, uh, you know, debates and just basically being confused as to your end times views. Now, this episode is, again, I didn't plan on this episode, so probably in the future as other things get added to this series, we'll just tack them on the end. So this this episode probably, it's it's episode 30 for the series, but probably it belongs closer to you know, like episode six and seven or episode five. Some of those episodes earlier in the series we talked about were Abraham's, uh, were God's promises to Abraham fulfilled. What's the nature of the temple, right? We looked at how that's a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. So this is, if this is your first time tuning into this series or hearing me discuss these things, I'm, I'm going to gloss over some of those things I just mentioned, like whether Abraham's promises were fulfilled What's the nature of the temple? We talked about that in great detail and great depth in previous episodes in this series. So I'm not going to do that here because there's a lot to talk about. This is a very um, complex, complex topic in the sense that it requires critical thinking. it requires evaluating context quite a bit and looking at the over the overarching theme of what Paul is saying so that we aren't distracted, by teachings of men. And I do say they are teachings of men because ultimately we've looked at a lot of things in this series, like dispensationalism and why it's wrong, and we'll cover that a little bit more today. But this is a big one. It's an interesting topic. It's also talking about election. So I'm very excited to unpack this with you because it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a little complex, but it's actually, once you see it, for what it's really trying to say, what Paul is really trying to convey here, I think it's very interesting. And it's actually very beautiful, too because it gives us a window into his thinking and into the time of the church at that time. So by the end of this, I hope to show you my goal is that these verses, Romans 11, and specifically Romans 11 verse 26, which is often used to support end times views, has nothing to do with the end times, at least not in the way that we consider end times events. Remember that the apostles including Paul, all believed that they were already in the last days. So that, right off the bat, should give you an interesting view as to what he means when he talks about all Israel being saved. So without further ado, let's just read the whole chapter. We're going to read all the way through, and we're going to just do some commentary on some things. So this is Romans 11, uh, verse 1. This is the remnant of Israel. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Pay attention to that language. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Very important verse here that we have to commit to memory. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Gentiles grafted in. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of those branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is you. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Here's the final chapter of this, and this is where it gets a little controversial, although it shouldn't be. The mystery of Israel's salvation. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, pretty in-depth chapter. There's a lot to unpack here, and that's why, again, I realized that, you know, I really didn't talk about this in the end-time series. And I probably should have, but I, I didn't it didn't really occur to me as an important thing, but I realized a lot of people believe that there is a future revival. Of the Jews. Now, most of those people are dispensationalists, but even people who don't subscribe to dispensationalism believe that there is some future revival, basically, outside of, you know, so basically there's a purpose for Israel. Now, dispensationalists have a very broad and deep teaching on that. It's almost where Christ has two brides, or basically has, you know, two nations almost. He has the chosen elect of the church, and then there's the nation of Israel. So there's a whole thing on that. We address that in many, many different episodes. But even if you're not a dispensationalist, a lot of people tend to believe that there is some future revival among the Jews, where basically there's going to be this great conversion, the gospel's going to be accepted in Israel, in the state of Israel, and the Jews will finally come to Christ. And so... A lot of people believe this, and as you can tell, when you first read through these things, you know, on first impact, it seems that that would be the case. I mean, it's a reasonable belief, at least on first value, right? But one thing that we have to remember, and this is, I've echoed this throughout the series, and in just in general, you know, in your spiritual walk with the Lord, and your reading of the Bible, you have to remember that what you see and what you react to initially is not always the truth. Most of the time it's not, because the Bible teaches spiritual things, very consistently so, especially the New Testament. And, you know, the New Testament is the fulfillment of all these types and shadows in the Old Testament. And so you cannot read the Bible and what it's saying, especially Paul, with, with eyes that are focused on physical things that are happening, as opposed to spiritual reality. This is a very important point. And, and if you have been with me for the previous episodes of the, the series that we did, like, for example, again, the Israel and the Third Temple. I think it's episode six, if I'm not mistaken. But Israel and the Third Temple. The Third Temple that's being built in Israel right now is not Bible prophecy being fulfilled. It's not. Go back to the episode and check it out. There's plenty of documentation, both from Scripture and history and current events, to prove to you that it's not the case. Now, it is being built, and it is being coordinated by the true Antichrist power to make people believe that we are fulfilling Bible prophecy. Now, of course, Bible prophecy will be fulfilled. But, gosh, it's so tempting to go back into this, but you have to remember that a couple hundred years ago, when the Reformation started, and identified the true Antichrist power on the earth, which is the papacy, what happened? They started the Jesuits. They started the Counter-Reformation. And a lot of things came out of the Counter-Reformation. One of them being a futuristic way. We're not talking lasers and UFOs. We're talking everything is in the future and physical and fleshly. A futuristic way of reading the Bible. Futurism, which has all kinds of permutations. One of them being dispensationalism. But it's all focused on literal fleshly things. There's a literal temple. Why is that? Why is that so important? Well, if you realize that the temple is actually the body of Christ, which is the church, which is the kingdom, all these things are equivalent terms. And Daniel warns you that the little horn power will enter the temple and proclaim himself to be God. Do you see the vast difference of realities, if you believe that that's a physical temple, versus if you see it as the spiritual reality of the church, who entered the church and proclaimed himself to be God? It's the Pope that's sitting between the, the cherubim, proclaiming to be Holy Father and forgiving sins and being the vicar of Christ. Pontifex Maximus, the the bridge between all things, the heaven and earth, Babylonian title. That's a very different reality than saying, "Oh, there's a physical temple in the Jew, uh, the Jewish state," and You know, there's some charming guy that's going to walk into it and proclaim himself to be God. Now, they're coordinating that. They're coordinating that. And we talked about why they're coordinating that. Because first off, they committed to this prophecy because they had to take attention off of themselves. So now they had to create its fulfillment. And God is letting them do that so that many people will be deceived. Because if there's a false Christ that comes down the road to fulfill this false prophecy or this p- false reading of Revelation where there's a, you know, there, there's a garbage truck passing by, so I'm trying to gauge my speech, but uh, it's probably fine. There, Where there's a false Christ that shows up and basically fulfills this false reading of Revelation where they coordinate some antichrist figure to go in a physical temple. And then let's say Lucifer shows up, dressed as... The Son of God. And a lot of people believe this. Early Christians believed this. If you recall, very early on in the series, we looked at the Didak, which is a historical Christian document. A lot of Christians believe that Lucifer would masquerade as the Son of God at the end of days and basically bring in a false, counterfeit millennial kingdom, a counterfeit reign where you have to worship. Imagine if that happens and people will be so convinced that Bible prophecy has been fulfilled because all these things are being coordinated. This is what's on the line, and this is what's motivated me. So I hope you see my heart. We're kind of going the scenic route here, but this is why it's so important to understand these things. This is why I've been so motivated to, to put together this series and to make sure that people know the truth. Now, these are very controversial opinions because most people believe in dispensationalism. Even if you're not a dispensationalist, most people think, oh, well, there's a future revival of the Jews. And so again, all this stuff fits together into a false eschatology. So if we can prove that it's not what people think it is, then that releases the chains. And you know that that's not part of Bible prophecy. And even if they coordinate that, and they do some sort of false charismatic revival in Israel, which are very capable of doing, and there's some physical temple, and some guy walks into it, and something happens, and then It seems like Jesus is here. First off, remember that the Bible says we're going to meet him in the air. That's not a rapture. That's just, that's a supernatural thing that happens when Christ returns, along with the resurrection, along with other supernatural events. So if somebody that purports to be Jesus comes around, and we're not meeting him in the air, but he's doing miracles, and he destroys some sort of antichrist figure, be very discerning. This is, again, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's a very probable possibility. I've talked about the Mark of the Beast. I've talked about all kinds of other things in the previous episode. So go check those out. But again, if, if, if you prepare for the worst, then that's the best way to prepare, right? So ultimately, this is on the horizon. They are obviously trying to fulfill these things, these false things, to deceive people into something, either a false Christ, into a one-world religion under the Pope, a Christian nationalist system, which we talked about. Again, if you think I'm crazy, go back to the previous episodes; they're very well documented. But going back to Romans 11, because there's a lot to talk about today. There are three common positions for how this has been interpreted, especially verse 26. Again, now verse 26 says, uh, "And in this way, all Israel will be saved." So, what is it? What does it mean by all Israel? This is this is the topic under debate. What does is all Israel mean? And there's been three historically, you know, historic positions on this. And the first one is that it's the Israel of God, meaning when Paul says all Israel here, he's making a distinction between normal Israel and the Israel of God, where you have the elect people that God has chosen to save by faith that are both Jew and Gentile. So it's basically the the church, a group of body of believers who have, faith in Christ. It's always been by faith. Another option is that it's the nation of Israel, as in the ethnic nation of Israel. And this is the option that teaches there's a future revival among the Jews. And the third option is that it's the elect of Israel. So it's still talking about elect people, but it's just talking about the elect from Israel specifically, the ethnic elect of Israel, if that makes sense. So there's the second option was the nation of Israel, meaning the entire nation. And the third option is the elect within that nation. So it's, it's a more niche type of topic. So I'm going to quickly address both of these options, actually all three. But the third one, the, the first one that I listed off, which is that Israel is the Israel of God, this is the position that I'm going to be defending today. Now, again, if you don't agree with that, if that gives you a knee-jerk reaction, if that annoys you, then stick around with me and give me the benefit of the doubt, because a lot of people are deceived by this, and there's very, very good reasoning as to why it is the Israel of God. And it's not the nation of Israel, and it's also not the elect of Israel. But why it can't be the elect of Israel, as in the remnant of Israel, is that Paul refers to this as the mystery, the mystery of Israel's salvation. Now, a mystery... A mystery is something that's paradoxical. It's something unexpected. It's something that's being revealed. It's not something that's unknown. It's saying, oh, we just don't know what this is. It's, it's something that's very purposeful and, and intentionally created by God. It's something, again, paradoxical. It's a lot of mysteries, right? Like the mystery of the incarnation. How is it that Jesus was both God and man simultaneously? Well, that's a mystery. Not in the sense that we don't know it, because we do know it. Jesus existed, The Bible says he was both God and man, but the mystery is, it's something paradoxical that's being revealed that you get to marvel at. And it's the same here. When Paul says this is a mystery, he's referring to something very paradoxical, very, you know, elusive, very interesting. So if this is talking about, if all Israel is referring to the remnant of Israel, meaning the elect out of the ethnic group of Israel, then it's not really a mystery. You see the point? it would have ended very early on in the chapter where he quotes uh, God saying that he saved for himself 7,000 men who didn't bow the knee to Baal. Okay, that's it. That's basically the answer to the story. Has has God given up on Israel? No. He saved, just like he saved 7,000 people who didn't bow the knee to Baal, there's now a remnant. Okay, end of story. And if if that was the case. But it's not the case because Paul goes on and on and on to, to create this theology and to argue for something much more profound. So it can't be the remnant of Israel. That's not a very likely explanation. There's not a lot of support for that. Now, why it's not the nation of Israel? This is the main one, right? This is the main one that people believe, and I hope, again, you'll give me the benefit of the doubt if you really believe in this, because it will help free you from the chains of dispensationalism. It will help free you from the chains of futurism, because futurism and dispensationalism Postmillennialism, millennialism pre-millennialism, dispensationalism. Gosh, those are some long words. All these are the majority of what people believe. And unfortunately, what's at stake is a future false millennial reign. And I'm serious about that. I really think they're coordinating a false millennial reign. If you have seen any of my previous episodes, especially like the dark to light episode, the counterfeit spirit, all these things we talked about. Very much so, this is on the agenda. We are moving into a false golden age. And if you believe that that's supposed to happen, you will be one of the people that will take the mark of the beast. Now again, there's a sovereign electing purpose, so don't be afraid. Cling to the Lord, because those who God has chosen to save will not be taking the mark of the beast. It's not going to happen. But the point is that a lot of people will take the mark of the beast. Why? Because it's going to be very inviting very deceptive. So we have to be sharp. But this is what people believe. And most people in end times, regard, like I said, regardless of your leanings, whether you're dispensationalist or not, they believe that there's some revival among the Jews, especially because of this verse. But there's a problem. There's a lot of problems with this. And one of them is that it's been 2,000 years now, almost, of Jews that basically have died without knowing Christ and rejecting Christ. So, this can't be talking about all of Israel, because most of Israel in history, ethnic Israel, we're talking about the the nation of Israel, has not been saved in that sense, right? So, it can't be talking about all Israel. We also refuted post- and premillennialism throughout this series. Now, again, if this is the first time you're tuning in, I'm sorry this episode is at the end. (laughs) I just tacked it on to the end of the series. It should be long you know, somewhere like number six or number seven, where we talk about the temple and other things like that. But post-millennialism has an optimistic future. And we refuted that over and over again because post-millennialism is wrong about its optimistic future. There is no optimistic future in the short term. Of course, there is long term. I mean, there's eternity. Christ is going to rule on earth. It's going to be perfect. Absolutely. But the end times are not optimistic at all. Before that happens, it just goes downhill faster and faster. So postmillennialism is an illusion, and it's very much in alignment with things like the Talmud that teach basically this this works-based, you know, we are the ones who bring about the millennium. You know, we have to convert Christianity. It's very... Postmillennialism falls right into the trap of Christian nationalism. A lot of postmillennials are Christian nationalists. They're very for that agenda, because the Christian nationalist system is how you bring about the millennial kingdom. Do you see the, the the satanic underpinnings of this? Where, again, if you've followed my work, and these are not just my, my opinions, a lot of other people believe these things, but not too many, unfortunately, not too many. That's my goal with this series, the more people realize the truth. But post-millennialism falls right into the trap of the papacy, of of this ecumenical Christian nationalist church-state union beast that is coming on the horizon, Mystery Babylon. So post-millennialism, gosh, it's so hard to say, fast at least, Uh, it's an illusion. It's a deception. And we looked at that. We also looked at Jesus being king right now. He has to be king in order to be priest. We looked at Satan being bound at the cross. It's not some future binding. We looked at the thousand years in Revelation 20 being metaphorical because first off in Greek, they're plural. It's thousands, chilioi, Look it up. It's plural. It's not literally a thousand years. We looked at all of this. The kingdom equals the church, equals the temple, equals the body of Christ, equals the Lord's table. All these things are present realities. They started at Pentecost. The kingdom's already here. It's a spiritual reign. Christ is reigning from heaven. And when he returns to give the kingdom back to the Father so that God can be all in all, Christ will, as the body will rule on earth, the triune God will reign through Christ. That's basically what's going to happen. He will rule on earth, but it's not a millennial kingdom. It's just eternity. So the millennial kingdom is a deception, the future millennial kingdom. The current millennial kingdom is just the current period of time between the two advents, between the time that Christ came to the earth the first time and the time that he's coming back. That's the millennial kingdom where he's reigning while his enemies, enemies are being put under his feet. Do you see how that works? It's, it's It works perfectly, but if you believe that he has to reign in the future where his enemies have to be um, put under his feet, and let's say you know the truth about things, and it's actually Lucifer who's pretending to be Christ, and it's some materialistic fleshly millennial kingdom, and you refuse to be part of that kingdom, you're one of the enemies that has to be put under his feet. Do you see how all this is quickly turned around? I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating, but we also looked at the idea there's no rapture. We looked at Abraham's Uh, promises to Abraham. They were all fulfilled. All the land promises were fulfilled to Abraham. The temple is a spiritual reality. The days in Daniel and John, they're years, 1260 years. They're not literal days. And you know that by Daniel's 70 weeks. All this stuff, again, it's so easy to just jump in all this stuff and review, but go back to those previous episodes. All these things refute pre- and post-millennialism and dispensationalism. So, you know, we just take it for what it is. There's also no other place in scripture that talks about a revival of the Jewish nation. Paul doesn't talk about this. If this is if this is what he's talking about here in Romans 11, then where in other places in scripture does he and other apostles talk about a Jewish revival? Does Revelation talk about it? No. Does Daniel talk about it? No. Revelation has the 144,000 but those are symbolic numbers. This is symbolic reality. Again, all the apostles knew that there was an Israel of God. There was an elect. We, You know, I haven't gone too much in the election in this series because it wasn't focused on salvation. But both John, Paul, Peter, everybody used the word elect. They knew what election was. They knew that God had a sovereign choice in who he saves. And so when John penned Revelation and was given these revelations, it wasn't talking about literal people from from the state of Israel, which is, by the way, an illegal Zionist Rothschild state, talking about those people being saved. Now, are there elect in the state of Israel? Yeah, there's elect everywhere. There's elect in Africa, in India, in China, in Russia. There's elect everywhere. We don't know who is elect. But the point is that these things are not talking about, again, you're looking at fleshly things when you read that as a literal 144,000 Jews from Israel, which by the way, isn't even that much. So again, these are metaphorical things. So this is not talking about the remnant of Israel. Romans 11 is not talking about the remnant of Israel because it's a mystery. It's something more profound, more paradoxical. So that would make no sense for it to be just the remnant of Israel. And it's also not a prophetic end times verse that's talking about Jewish revival because first and foremost, post- and premillennialism and dispensationalism are false teachings they're wrong so the question is what could it be talking about then if this is the case what could it be talking about what does it mean when he says in this way all israel will be saved well that's what we're going to explore today and i hope that it'll be interesting and edifying for you so that's just one more nail in the coffin for dispensationalism but all israel refers to the elect from both Jews and Gentiles, which comprise the body of believers. The church, the the woman, remember the woman in Revelation 12, before the Messiah, is the same woman running away from the dragon after the Messiah. It's the body of believers. It's always been a body of believers. One body, one bride, one church, one group of people, one Israel. And so this is very important, but it seems contradictory. It doesn't seem that he's saying that, it doesn't seem that way. And this is this is the challenge with this verse because we have to suspend our desire to read the obvious. This is so important. Don't go with the obvious. When you see something, don't jump to conclusions of what is obvious, especially something that is, like if you believe this, then it's very contradictory to everything else about the end times, right? So ultimately, if there's a contradiction or it seems like there is, we have to dig deeper and we have to evaluate. This goes for any, anything in scripture. People, when they accuse the gospels of being contradictory with one another, it's because they haven't gone deep enough to understand that those contradictions aren't contradictions. They're actually complementary. So it's the same thing here. This is about the elect group of people from both Jews and Gentiles. And I'll prove that to you, hopefully. But this is dealing also with something in the present time of Paul. It's not dealing with something that's, you know, thousands of years in the future. The issue that Paul opens up with is that has God abandoned Israel because they rejected Christ? This is, this is the big question that he seeks to answer because obviously the Israelite what's the, what's the, what's the context of the time? Israel rejected Jesus and the Jews were basically enemies with the, with the newfound Christians. Some of them converted, but it was very tense and yet Jesus was the Israel Messiah. So it's like, what's going on? Has God rejected them? I, like, was were they, you know, was that it? Was their purpose just to bring the Messiah and then now he's going to throw them away? What's what's God going to do with Israel? And that's a very legitimate question. And Paul answers that question. And the short answer is no, he hasn't rejected Israel. And a longer answer is no, because God's plan of election never included the entire ethnic state of Israel, the entire nation of Israel, so that it could be grace. And we'll, we'll circle back to this very important point so many times. If God had saved all the ethnic Israelites, which he didn't, then it wouldn't be by grace. It would be based on national heritage, on DNA, on your lineage. It would be based on something physical instead of being based on God's grace. Do you see the very important point here? Election... It had to be this way. He chose a people physically to bring about the Messiah. But out of those people, there was always a remnant. There was He didn't save all the Israelites. Most of the Israelites weren't saved because they were constantly rebelling and getting judged. There was a remnant that God had reserved for himself through faith and given them the ability to believe. But all Israel was not saved in history. And we know that from a lot of different places. We'll go back into this. But one of them is Daniel 12. When it says that a time will come when who the, the do- those who sleep in the dust of the earth will be resurrected, some to everlasting joy, some to everlasting content. Now, Daniel is a second temple Jew, that that era at least. It was 500 years before Christ. So do you think that he was thinking about Gentiles at this point? No, he was thinking about Jews, Israelites. Some are going to be resurrected to everlasting contempt, meaning they're going to be destroyed. So, even from early on, people knew that Israel wasn't, you know, completely saved. Like, every ethnic Jew was saved by God just because they're an ethnic Jew. Election was always throughout the Old Testament. And again, this is not about salvation or election this episode, but election is a consistent theme throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, most Israel ethnically was not saved. And that's very important because... On one hand, no, God is God's purpose has not to just throw Israel away, but at the same time, God's purpose is sovereign and through election. And so that way it's always based by grace. So there is a remnant out of Israel. God's purpose has not stopped, but it's a remnant chosen by grace. And this is very important because it's going to explain some other things we're talking about. But I want to jump into why this is about Paul's present time and not something about the future. This is also very important, because a lot of people, again, believe that this is some future thing, but if we really examine the context, we'll see that Paul is actually, his language is very much about the present time. It's not about something happening in the future, long-distance future at least. And if we jump into the first verse, it's Romans 1, and it says, "'I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin.'" So again, this is the question that he poses. You know, has God rejected his people? And what is Paul's answer? Well, the answer is, no, look, I'm living proof. I'm a Benjaminite. I'm an Israelite. I'm saved. God has not rejected his people. And why is this important as a timestamp? Well, he doesn't say, don't you know that he's going to revive all of them or, you know, basically save all them during the millennium? He's not talking about some future thing. He's saying, look, I'm living proof that God's purpose is still unfolding in Israel right now, today. I'm saved. I'm a Benjaminite. So God has not rejected his people, i.e. right now. I'm proof. Do you see how this is a timestamp Know why it's very important? He's not saying something's. Don't worry. God hasn't rejected his people. And the way you're going to know he's not rejected his people is there's going to be a future revival among the Jews. No, he's saying, look, look at me. I'm a Benjaminite, I'm an Israelite, Pharisee, and I believe in Jesus. So, obviously, God has not rejected his people. That's very important. Now, a couple of verses later in verse 5, it reads this. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So, again, this is a time marker. He's, this was just in response to uh, the issue with Elijah and God basically reserving 7,000 men for himself through election, through through saving grace that didn't bow the knee to Baal. And so what does Paul say? So too now, at the present time, current timestamp, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Now again, if this if this chapter was about if all Israel, let me put it this way, if all Israel meant the the remnant within Israel, the elect of specifically the nation of Israel, then it would the chapter would end right here at verse five. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, done. Finished. No need to go on into more theology. Do you see the point? So it's not the remnant of Israel that all Israel refers to. It's a much more complex mystery. But moving on, we have other things that are very important. In verse 12 through 15, Paul talks about this mechanism of jealousy, basically, that God designed through the Jews' rejection, and that's going to basically lead to the salvation of the Gentiles, because the gospel is going to the Gentiles now, because the Jews rejected it, and those elect Jews that will be saved will become jealous of the Gentiles being saved and come back into the fold. So this is verse 12. Now, if their trespasses mean, this is Gentiles grafted in. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their Failure means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, this is very important because what is is the point of this? His ministry is acting right now in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Is he talking about a future, like he's going to somehow, his preaching is going to save people 2,000 years from the current present time in the letter? No. Right now. the, the, The issue is, look, there's a hardening that's come upon Israel and that's by design. God hardens who he wills. He opens the eyes of who he wills. God hardened the Israelites so that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. And through this medium, through this mechanism, those who are elect, who are the remnant in the nation of Israel and ethnic Israel, like Paul, of course, Paul didn't come to the gospel out of jealousy. He had his own unique situation. But the point is the same. Those who are elect and remnant of Israel we'll see the blessings of the gentiles and we'll see the what's the fruits of the the work that's happening and be jealous and want to reconcile their relationship with God to be part of this new thing that's what's going on here and he, and Paul is saying look I hope that my ministry will will do this you know right now so that I can bring some of these people back into the fold so I can save some of them it's very important Now, there's also a connotation here for throughout time, although, again, this is not the primary thing, but it is a connotation in the sense that if this is the way that God designed it to work, then throughout time, we, as the elect who believe the gospel, who treasure it, who treasure Christ, should be basically a space for the Jewish people and to show them the benefits of the gospel and the benefits of having a relationship with Jesus so that those who are elect... Will come to Christ. Now, if you're a dispensationalist, and again, this I've outlined this before. If you're a dispensationalist, or if you believe that, don't worry, God's going to have a future revival among the Jews in in the future. Then, what does that mean? That means that evangelism is null and void, at least for the current time. And the question is, how do you know when to start the revival? I mean, wh- who is going to start it? Right? If you're thinking there's some future revival, who's going to do that? Of course. In that understanding, somehow God will create a revival. But nonetheless, you're basically saying, well, we don't need to evangelize to the Jews until that time. Do you see the problem with that? Jews, just like Africans, just like Chinese, just like Mexicans, just like Europeans, everybody needs the gospel. But if you believe that, oh, don't worry, they're going to have a future future revival, that means you're saying, well, it's okay for the you know current people to keep dying in their sins without the gospel. Do you see the, the big problem with that? I hope you do, because Paul wouldn't have thought that way, especially from his current words. The, the ministry that Paul has embraced is this ministry to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he hopes that through his work, in the mechanism that God has created through this rejection of the of the Jews so that the the, the, the gospel can go to the Gentiles and then the elect of the Jews will get jealous, he's hoping that he'll be part of that. So it's a present time situation. Now, later in verse 30 through 32, again, you see some timestamps. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now, pay attention to the word now, have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too have they, so too have now, they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So now, the word now appears four times. It's a very present moment thing. It's a present moment reality. You were disobedient, and now you've received mercy. He's talking to the current Gentiles. And because of that, those who are elect of Israel will respond to you receiving mercy now. And they will now receive mercy too, because they were disobedient. You see how it works? It's it's very brilliantly organized. Again, in verse uh, 24, he talks about basically how they were provoked to jealousy, and then they're going to return back into this grafted tree of different types of branches. He says, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, this is the the comparison to the thing we just read, it's before that, contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? So this is verse 24. It's just a few verses before verse 30, which we just read. So he he went on this elaborate metaphor of a tree with different types of branches. And why is that important? Because the the tree being grafted is a present reality. Those who were disobedient, the Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree and some of the branches were taken out, right? But some of those disobedient were elect and they're going to come back because of jealousy. They're going to be grafted back in even more naturally because, of course, they're part of the natural tree. They're part of the heritage. But again, God's sovereign purpose is not based on DNA. It's based on faith. So this is a very important point. So, Paul is writing to the Gentiles. It's very clear that Paul is writing to the Gentiles about his Jewish brethren. It's a present reality. It's a present time thing. Paul reminds them that God still has a purpose for Israel, and one of the proofs of that is his own life in the present moment. It's not about showing proof because of some future thing that's going to happen. These are present realities. Paul also recognizes God's sovereign election at work through the Jewish people. And we know that through the remnant that he quoted from uh, Elijah's interaction with the, with the prophets, how 7,000 were reserved, uh, that didn't bow the knee to Baal, and himself, and he talked about basically the olive branches being, coming, being grafted back in. He mentions the word elect several times. So there's a lot of election in Romans 11. It's very important. He he recognizes that God's purpose is still unfolding, not that's going to unfold in a future reality 2,000 years from now. And of course, Paul also hopes that his ministry was going to lead to the salvation of the Jews, the elect Jews, not the nation of Israel, but the elect Jews, the ones who are destined to respond to the conversion of the Gentiles with jealousy, just as God made it. So, This is all unfolding in the real present time. And of course, the language in the chapter throughout, as we noticed, is very much focused on the unfolding of the current time. So, if dispensationalism is wrong and futurism is wrong, and it's very clear that this is talking about the present time as a very present reality throughout the chapter, then what does all Israel mean? What's it referring to? What does it mean when he says that the fullness of the Gentiles has to come in. And there's a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What does that mean? And that's what we're going to explore today. And we're going to make sense of it because if this is not an end times verse, as most people believe, how do we make sense of it? And there's actually, you can make much more sense out of it. I think that the sense that you make is much more profound and interesting than something as... Simple as, oh, there's just going to be a great revival among the Jews in the future. I mean, it's a very obvious, low hanging fruit, you know, going with the fleshly physical things that you see rather than thinking and using context. And again, look, I don't blame anybody because it's very easy to go that route. This requires a lot more in depth context and reading and understanding Paul's writings in other places too. But I want to give you five things to consider. And the first is that the word Israel can be used to mean different things, even in the same sentence. And we're going to give you an example. Romans 9, verse 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Very important couple of verses. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What does that mean? We have a sentence where Israel is being used literally back to back, and it means two different things. And of course, he explains it in the following verses, that the descendant of Israel, which is the ethnic Israel, is not necessarily part of Israel As in the Israel of God, the people who are children of the promise, people who are by faith. And of course, the Bible teaches election, so those who God has chosen through grace to give them faith to believe they are the children of the promise. They are Israel, true Israel, right? So there's this distinction of Israel being a political nation. Certainly, it's used for that. And then there's a distinction, especially in the New Testament, especially with Paul, that Israel is a spiritual reality. Israel is the the group of people that God has chosen to save. That is the true Israel. Some of those people are from ethnic political Israel, and some of them are Gentiles, but all of those people are Israel. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's very important, and I want you to compare this to other places that Paul has written. Galatians 6, verse 16, very popular verse, and as Uh, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Very important verse. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 12. One in Christ. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So basically they were called, you know, pagans by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But it, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near where? To the commonwealth of Israel. Here it is. Verse 12. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ to what? To the commonwealth of Israel because you were far off. So in Ephesians two, where he talks about one Christ, it's the same thing again. People who are believers, Jew and Gentile, through Christ, they are part of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel. You were separated at one point because that, those were physical realities, but now there's a spiritual reality that supersedes these physical things. Do you see how this works? Through Christ, it's all spiritual, and you're part of the commonwealth of Israel, true Israel. It's all revealed through Christ. Very, very fascinating and profound. Colossians, letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, neither Jew nor Greek. Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who is the circumcision, i.e., who is the Jew? The real Jew is he who worships by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So, it's he's writing many, many times in all other letters about these topics, about the really the issue of, of Gentile, the Gentile-Jew problem, right? What, what's going to happen with the Gentiles? Obviously, the Jews were wondering what's going on. The Gentiles are wondering what's going on. God had this chosen people for, you know, 1,500 years, and now it's it's broadened that meaning. And so imagine the amount of work that Paul has to do to change the the thinking. And you can tell from all of his letters that he writes about this consistently, that this is no longer the thinking. That's the old way of thinking. There's no division in Christ. And again, there's another reason why dispensationalism is false, because they bring that division back in. Where the gospel unites, dispensationalism says, oh, no, no, there, there's still the Jews with their separate plan of salvation, and there's the the church. But the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says there's neither Jew nor Greek, and everybody is one in Christ. Now, another thing that's important, so what do we get from that? Well, we get that Israel is not just the political nation of Israel, even within the same sentence. So that proves that there is more to dig here than what seems, than what meets the eye. Now, in verse 26 of, of Romans, let me just find the chapter here. It says, Israel versus all Israel. That's what I want to see. Okay. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is verse 26. But verse 25 is just Israel. Lest you be wise in your side, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved so you have verse 25 you have Israel and then verse 26 is all Israel now we know that Israel can be meaning two different things it could be referring to the elect and to the nation of Israel even within the same sentence you can he can use those two meanings now the question is is the is the word all before Israel? Is that significant? And the answer is yes, it is significant. And we see that style of writing in other places. In Romans 4, verse 13, the promise realized through faith. You have the same thing with Abraham's offspring or Abraham's seed. Verse 13, it says the following. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he, should, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, so you have something about the offspring of Abraham. It's obviously talking about the actual, ethnic, political, geopolitical, physical offspring. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness and faith. Okay, let's see a couple verses later, verse 16 in Romans 4. Now, keep in mind, this is still in Romans. there's, there's We're going to come back to this, but Paul is building a, a very big case here, of which chapter 11 when he finally says all Israel, this is like the climax. It's the cherry on the Sunday of this entire case of there's Israel and then there's the Israel of God. But verse 16 says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Well, who are, who are all his offspring? Why did you mention all his offspring? Hyphen. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you see what the qualifier is here? When he says all his offspring, what does he mean? Well, not only to the adherent of the law, i.e. the Jew, the, the ethnic Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Meaning if you share in the faith that Abraham had, you are a child of the offspring. You are considered part of the offspring. So in the same way that he had The word offspring referred to physical offspring. And then later, a few verses later, he refers to all the offspring in a spiritual sense. This is the same writing style that we see in verses 25 and 26, where you have Israel, hardening came upon Israel, i.e. the nation of Israel, the ethnic Jews, so that they would reject the gospel. But that's going to lead to the Gentiles being converted Which is going to make the it's gonna provoke the elect Jews that God has chosen to save, because his purpose is still unfolding, obviously, because of Paul. It's going to lead those people to come back into the fold and be saved. In this way, all Israel, spiritual Israel, will be saved. This is the mechanism where all Israel whereby all Israel will be saved. Not this is how geopolitical nation, ethnic Jews will be saved. Do you see very big difference? I hope you do. I hope it's becoming obvious. Now, we know in Romans 11, verse 30 through 32, that all relates to Jews and Gentiles. For just as you were all at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, they being the Jews, in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Now, get this, verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now, Paul uses all, the word all, in his letters in a very specific way. He's not talking about every person under the sun, because if he were, that would be universalism. You have to reject that. Think about it. If he's if God has consigned all to disobedience, okay, that part's true, that he may have mercy on all. Wait a minute. Mercy on everybody? So he's going to save everybody? Well, that's not true. that can be plainly seen from history. So what is the all? Well, the all refers to the two groups of people that Paul was just talking about. He was just talking about how the Gentiles were disobedient and how the Jews are going to be disobedient, and that's going to lead to their uh, coming back to the gospel. All in brackets refers to the Jews and Gentiles. And we have this pattern throughout a lot of other places in Romans. It's not, all is not all people. It's not a universalist thing. It's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He uses it to mean all kinds of people in other places. He uses it to mean all the elect. Or most of the time, especially in Romans, he means Jews and Gentiles. So all doesn't mean all people. This is a very important point because a lot of people also use these verses, not not specifically this one, but other places where the word all is used to support universalism or even to support Arminianism, which is, again, I don't want to get into too much of that because this is an End Times episode, but... Arminianism is the idea that, well, your free will can activate your salvation. God doesn't really have a sovereign purpose in making people be saved. He just offers the opportunity, and so everybody can take the opportunity. Well, that's that's not true. If you really underline and understand the context of when the word all is used, it's very clear that it's not talking about all people. But again, that's a can of worms. I'm not going to get into it. Separate series for that, whole series on salvation. But this series, this episode is about end times. So what other places does Paul use this same language and is very clearly referring to Jew and Gentile? Well, let's take a look. Romans chapter three, verse nine. No one is righteous. Verse nine. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So, what is all referring to? Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, right? As it is written, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All in this context is referring to Jews and Gentiles. A couple verses later in verse 21, the righteousness of God through faith. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of god through faith in christ jesus for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus now is this this is very important okay that's why i kept reading if all have if all is talking about every everybody under the sun all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So everybody's justified by his grace as a gift? Or are we talking about Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, and those who are justified, Will be, there will be people that are justified from both camps, both tribes, Gentiles and Jews, and those people are elect. Otherwise, you have universalism. So again, he's talking the consistent thread here is he's always addressing the Jew and Gentile problem. It's very important that we see that. And again, Romans 10 verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. What is all referring to? Jew and Greek, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, again, this is, doesn't mean that you have the ability to call on him. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. What's the point of this? It's that Jesus is not just for the Jews. Jesus is for both Gentiles and Jews. Again, he's building the case of this is expanding now. It's not just a Jewish thing anymore. There's an Israel of God. There's an electing purpose that involves some people from the nation of Israel, but a lot of people from outside the nation of Israel. The Lord, Jesus is the Lord of all, meaning all people, all kinds of people. Do you see how he's using the word all here? It's not everybody And everybody is justified and everybody who calls, well, first off, you can't even call on the name of the Lord because everybody rebels against God. You don't have the ability to do that before God changes your heart. So again, that's another can of worms. But the the consistent thread is that he's using the word all for Jew and Gentile. Romans 11 verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." So, what is the point here with these metaphors of the dough and the branches and the trees? The point is that God is one people. He has one electing purpose. There's no separation. Okay? There's a tree. That tree is Israel. Now, that tree has certain branches that are cut off and other branches grafted in, and then maybe some of those branches that were cut off will be grafted back in. But the tree itself is, is the promise. It's the promise he made to Abraham. But that promise is not restricted to the ethnic nation of Israel. There's an electing purpose. Otherwise, it would be based on DNA, physical stuff. It's based on spiritual stuff, which is grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. So there's only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus. And if there's only one way to be saved, what does that mean? Well, it means there's only one people. There's only one people of God. Do you see why, again, dispensationalism is an error? It teaches basically that there's two people of God. There's there's the Jews who are, have this special place in God's heart for whatever reason and he who wants them to make this third temple and to offer sacrifices and that way they're gonna finally learn their lesson. I mean, doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. And then you have the church, which is the elect of God, but then wait a minute, how does that work if if God has if Christ has a bride, does he have two brides? Doesn't make any sense. There's one way to be saved. There's one people. This is what the gospel teaches through and through. And Paul has been trying to build this context throughout Romans. We're going to get back to this point a little bit later. But Israel can be used in different ways. And that's, that's very clear. So when he says all Israel as a way to distinguish from Israel within the same context, he's meaning something different because he does the same thing in other places, with the offspring and all his offspring, with the all constantly referring to Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, meaning like in an inclusive sense, God is God of all, right? God is going to have all kinds of people. Like when Jesus says, you know, when the Son of Man is lifted up and I'm going to draw all people to myself, does that verse mean I'm going to draw everybody and everybody's going to be saved? No, All means all kinds of people, meaning Jew and Gentile, Chinese, black, Mexican, German, Russian. There's going to be all kinds of people that are going to be drawn to Christ because the church is a living, diverse thing, all one under Christ, neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. This is what the gospel teaches. So we have to be consistent. Now, reason number two is grammar and context. And for this first one, I'm going to refer to the interlinear because there's an interesting part of the grammar in Romans 11, verse 25. So, if we go to the interlinear, this is Romans 11, 25, and it's always good to consult interlinear with with these types of verses because translations are never 100% accurate. You know, I mean, they're they're good for the most part, but sometimes with these types of things, the, the... the word in question might make a huge difference, and you'll see what I mean. Romans 11, verse 25. Not, now, I'm reading the literal English right under the under the Greek. Now, for I want you to be ignorant brothers of the mystery, this that not you may be in yourselves wise, that a hardening in part to Israel has happened until that, it's very important, the fullness of the Gentiles may come in. So, what is why is this important? I highlighted the word that, until that. It's not just until the fullness of the Chino- Gentiles comes in. It, as some sort of like, there's a hardening on the part of Israel until everybody in the Gentiles has been converted, then finally they're going to get their chance to be have a revival. That's what futurism believes. But that's not what this is saying in the original language. It's saying until that in the sense of That, as in, this is the mechanism. In other words, another way to read it would be, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, or the Jews, literal ethnic Israel, so that, right, that being, like, what's the mechanism? So that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in and be saved. Come into what? Come into the tree, can be grafted in. In this way, all Israel meaning the Israel of God, both Jew and Greek, Gentile, will be saved. This is what it's really saying. Now, a lot of people in history have believed this. Augustine taught this. Calvin obviously taught this. Now, of course, these are controversial figures for most people for whatever reason, but ultimately, this has been a pretty historic way to view this verse. Now, we've gotten away from that in the current time because the current time is dominated by futurism. A couple hundred years ago, these types of things didn't exist. During the Reformation, most people believed very differently. But because we're under the influence of these final days and the deceptions that belong in these final days, a lot of people believe in futurism. And so they're blinded and, and have this, you know, real high preference for the state of Israel and what the state of Israel is doing, what's happening in Israel and blah, blah, blah. When in reality, these are just shows. It's a show being put on to deceive you. So that the end, which is a false millennial reign, possibly a false Christ, all of those things will be accepted and the mark of the beast will be given out. But I digress. Now, another thing that's important within this verse, verse 11 to verse 25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, Paul is referencing when he's saying come in, what does he mean by that? He's referencing the metaphor of the tree and the olive branches that he just spent like 12 verses previously, verse 11 through 24, outlining this, this elaborate metaphor of, of being grafted in the tree and the lump and all these metaphors talking about basically uh, the one tree, but that has different branches. The Gentiles are grafted in where the previous branches were cut off, but the tree itself is all Israel. See the point here? When it says in this way, he's talking about the hardening that's come upon the Jews, by God's sovereign electing purpose, because remember, God elects people to save and he elects people to harden. That's his choice, to use how he wills. And we'll look at this in a little bit later when we look at um, the case that Paul has been building in Romans to to prove this point about the election. But the hardening that's come upon the Jews has led to the Gentiles being saved, which is going to in turn lead to the Jews who are elect to be jealous and become grafted back in like natural branches. This is all happening in the present time. He's explaining what is God's purpose for the present time with all this stuff going on, with the conversions happening, with the Jews rejecting and they're they're persecuting Christians and some of the Jews are converting. Like, it's, it's a madness. It's crazy. It's a very hectic time. And of course, Paul is trying to bring clarity. And this is going to last as long as it takes because this is the mechanism. Now, it's very important to remember that there is still a sovereign electing purpose for the Jews with Paul being an example. And that's what he keeps reminding uh, them. But he also tells them to not be wise in their own sight. Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't be conceited. And he gives this hypothetical example of a Gentile In verse 19, he says, Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So it's kind of like, you know, look at me. I'm so great. And he says, That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So he doesn't, this is a very important verse too. and, And again, it gives us insight into what's really being discussed here. Paul doesn't say, Well, you're not grafted in to replace them, but you're just grafted in to be beside them. He doesn't say that. He says, yeah, you were grafted in to replace them, the ones that were broken off, but remember that you exist by faith. You weren't grafted in. This this is, I hope I can explain this well because it's such an important point. You were not grafted in by the same reason that the Israelites thought that they were the chosen people. Okay, The, the Israelites basically had a very, nationalistic pride that look, oh, we're, we're God's people. We're, you know, just because I'm by blood, I'm, I'm righteous. I'm basically the the best thing since sliced bread. And of course they didn't have sliced bread at the time, but, or maybe they did, who knows. Um, But the point is that the Israelites had a very national pride among them, right? That basically it, it blinded their eyes to the reality that God wanted. How many times did God say, I don't want your physical sacrifices. I want gratitude from you. You know, I, I don't drink the blood of bulls and goats. I want, you know, you to treat others as you want to be treated. I want you to honor justice. I want you to give thanks. I want you to have faith, be loyal. Those are the things that God wants. Even in the Old Testament, there's plenty of verses about this. And so this is a very important point that Paul is making. He's trying to remind them, look, and look you you did get grafted in where those were cut off. But it's not so that you can be another chosen people. You got grafted in because of faith. God has given you faith, the gift of faith to believe, so that you could be part of the Israel of God. This is very important. Don't become conceited in the way that the Israelites were conceited, that they were the chosen people. Because God isn't choosing people based on their ethnicity or you know, their lineage or whatever else. God has given people the ability to believe through his grace and so you stand through faith do not be proud but fear work out your salvation with fear and trembling right because it is god that works through you so it's it's this duality of listen you're chosen you're elect but at the same time don't be boastful about it don't be boastful about your election don't be don't think that god chose you for any reason it has nothing to do with you it's god's sovereign purpose of election be grateful fear Tremble. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be grateful for the, the great price that was paid for you. This is the attitude that Paul is trying to inculcate in them or basically give them this attitude. Because the issue is not, look, the issue is not the Gentiles would think that their salvation takes the place of Jews. That's not what Paul is addressing here. The issue is don't presume that God is made a new chosen people. Like he's just repeating the same process of the Old Testament and that you can be saved without faith. Because a lot of the Israelites in the Old Testament believe, well, I'm an Israelite, so there you go, I'm favored. Well, no, God wants faith. It's not about your bloodline. And that's very important. He he doesn't want the Gentiles to repeat the same error of the Israelites. And, and that's very important because their salvation is also based on Abraham's promise, right? He talks about how the root supports you. This is, I believe, verse 17. Let's take a look at that. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, the nourishing root of the olive tree. What is the olive tree? Is it is the olive tree the ethnic state of Israel, and that's what's nourishing them? Or is it the promise of Abraham the nourishing root. Who who is the root? Who is the branch? Who is the vine? Remember all those words? They're used for who? Jesus. The olive tree, the body of Christ. He's the tree. He's the, the church. He's the everything that we be that we're part of. Apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 18 Do not be arrogant toward the branches if you are. Remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Very important. So he's reminding them again of God's sovereignty in salvation, to be humble, to be, you know, kind with the Jews, to to show them love, because again, that's going to provoke them to jealousy. They're going to see how blessed these people are and how different their lives are, that they have a new heart, and they're going to want and long to be with God, the ones that are elect, at least. They're going to respond to that with jealousy because that's the way God ordained it, and they're gonna come back and be grafted in as natural branches. But the tree, very important point, the tree is not ethnic Israel. That's not the nourishing tree. The nourishing tree is a spiritual reality. It's Christ, it's all Israel. It's it's the body of believers that are based on the, the promise of faith that was made to Abraham. It's a spiritual reality. So the point is that the Gentile salvation, the Gentiles' salvation, it's not replacing the Jews with a new election. There's no new chosen people. The Gentiles are part of Israel. It's it's coming back into a greater reality. All Israel is a conglomerate spiritual reality. It's not a physical thing. Now, of course, it was typified by physical Israel, but all Israel, in in the context of this chapter, is... A conglomerate spiritual reality. It's a conglomerate reality of both Jews who are elect out of the nation of Israel, because most of those people were not elect, and Gentiles who are elect. Most of the Gentiles aren't elect either. It's just a group of people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, including Israel, that comprise the church, which is the body of Christ, which is the temple, which is the Lord's table, which is the kingdom which is all Israel, the Israel of God. Now, number three in this reasoning is that, again, Paul refers to this as a mystery, the mystery of salvation, and that's right before verse 25. Now, again, if all Israel is talking about the elect of Israel, then this is not a mystery. It can't be a mystery because it's not a mystery. It would have just stopped at verse 5. Now, if all Israel means the Gentiles are equal heirs with the Jews because of the Jews' rejection, this is now something a lot more complicated, a lot more complex and interesting, very paradoxical, right? Like, how does that work if, because of the Jews' rejection, that's the reason the Gentiles got to get the gospel? And then the gospel redeeming the Gentiles is going to make the elect Jews jealous. That's a mystery. That's a very fascinating working of God. Now, we know that Paul has used this language in other places. In Ephesians 3, verse 1 through 6, he's talking about the mystery of the gospel revealed. So, let's, let's read that for a bit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, pay attention to the language here, because there are going to be a lot of parallels. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery has been made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. The mystery of the gospel is that we see it right here in verse six. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a vastly new reality. If you, again, you put yourself in Paul's shoes where you have 1500 years or more of history where it was just the chosen people, just the chosen people. And now suddenly The Gentiles are part of the chosen people? How does that work? On what basis is God doing that? Well, the basis is faith. It's grace. It's something invisible. It's something you can't see. It's an electing purpose. That's been the whole point of the Bible is to get you to realize the invisible things, the hidden things. The physical things of Israel were types and shadows for the future reality revealed in Christ. And a lot of people st- still struggle with this today. They struggled with it, you know, 2000 years ago when Paul wrote this. How can this be? You know, how can how can Gentiles be part of Israel? That's how can you say that, right? Well, people still struggle with that today. People still struggle with election, people still struggle with you know, predestination, people still struggle with <laughs> Israel having a remnant and not and this is not talking about the nation of Israel. A lot of people struggle with that. So it's no mystery, right? In that sense, no mystery that people still struggle with. But look, both of these texts that discuss the mystery, right? One of them says the mystery of the gospel. The other one's the mystery of Israel's salvation. Very interesting parallels. Both of these texts address the Gentiles. Both of these texts deal with Paul's ministry being about the Gentiles. Remember, I highlighted this first in the beginning. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. What's he saying here? He's I, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, meaning my ministry is for you. And we know that in Romans eleven thirteen he says, "Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles." So Paul is in both of these; it's addressing the Gentiles. Uh, it's talking about Paul's ministry being on behalf of the Gentiles. Both of these letters ad- address the Jew Gentile problem right? Which is just this conflict, like what's happening with the Gentiles? What's happening with the Jews? Because they're rejecting it, and the Gentiles are coming in. This is madness at the time, right? But that was the will and purpose of God, to bring everybody into all Israel. And of course, both of them also put the Jew-Gentile situation on equal par with one another. Both of these letters, in Romans 11 and in Romans in general, but also in Ephesians, Jew and Gentile, and in other places too, we saw many, many other places, Galatians, Colossians, Paul puts Jews and Gentiles as equal heirs. Now, specifically in Ephesians, this is talking about the gospel. This is the mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles are equal heirs. So it's reasonable to believe, where am I going with this? It's reasonable to to believe that the mystery spoken about in Romans 11, verse 25 and 26, the mystery of Israel's salvation is parallel to the mystery of the gospel. It's this mystery that there are both Jew and Gentile in the Israel of God. It's a mystery, and that mystery is because it's based on faith and God's sovereign grace. It's not based on something so obvious and simple and fleshly as, well, what nation are you born in? What's your ethnicity? Who's your father? Remember when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees, and they said that Abraham was their father. And he said, no, your father's the devil. And what did he mean by that? It's a spiritual father. And that's what it's always been about, spiritual things, not physical lineage. So the mystery is very much probably talking about the mystery of the gospel. There's a lot of parallels between Paul's writing in Ephesians and Romans. And again, just another reason why this is talking about something much different than just Again, like the political salvation of a nation or even the remnant of of an ethnic nation. It's much more broad and interesting. Now, number four, which is a very important point in all of this presentation, is that Paul attacks the Jewish entitlement to, you know, their own salvation, and he's reshaping the meaning of Israel throughout the the context of Romans. This is now a broader view that we're going to look at and looking throughout the whole letter of Romans, that he's building this case step by step and, and dismantling the entitlement of the Jews as the chosen people, building a case that that God's electing purpose is the one that determines who is saved. Number one, and number two, that when it all is when it's all said and done, Israel is actually a conglomerate spiritual reality. It's not, it's no longer a physical reality. And of course, he has to really build that case because remember the, the time that he's living in, the, the conditions of the time. So we start with this idea that first off, Jews believed that they were basically saved because they're circumcised. Now there's a lot of places and a lot of letters where Paul addresses this, that he's addressing Jews and saying, look, circumcision doesn't mean anything. It's your faith, right? It's the circumcision without hands that really matters. And all these things were just shadows and types for future realities. So you have to realize that this is what the Jews believed. They were very nationalistic. They believed that if you're circumcised by the flesh, you're saved. You're, you're, you're part of the covenant of Abraham, you're good. You're gonna be resurrected and you're gonna live forever and you know you have eternal life. It's your association that saves you. Just like today, the church, the Catholic church says, well, as long as you're, you know, there's no salvation outside the church. So your association in the church And doing religious works and going through the rat wheel of sacraments is what saves you, as opposed to a genuine, saving, trusting faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying there's, you know, Catholics who don't have that, but the institution is the same as what the Old Testament Jews believe. It's it's just the same thing with a different bow. It's a works-based legalistic righteousness, which is impossible. But that's what the Jews believed. And so we begin with Romans chapter 2, where he says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who, see, who, who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. What is, what is he saying here? Well, he's basically saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're born a Jew and you're circumcised. If you, if you have done evil and if you have not had faith in God, you will be, you know, judged. Doesn't matter if you're Jew. So he's he's attacking this entitlement that just because you're Jewish and circumcised, that you're immune from God's wrath because you're the chosen people. Not at all. God is not play favorites based on your lineage. God wants faith. And so he's dismantling this idea that no partiality means no favoritism. That's really what it means. But a couple of verses later in verse 25, chapter two, verse 25 through 29. It reads, for the circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. <laughs> for one, for no one is a Jew who is merely at one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. Do you see how he's just throwing everything they understand on their head, on its head? But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So he's now creating a new definition of what it means to be a Jew, i.e., what it means to be an Israelite. Now he hasn't openly stated anything about Israel being this conglomerate spiritual reality, but he's building the case. Listen, first, first, first order of business. We need to attack this entitlement that you have that, that just because you're circumcised, you're, you're okay. Because guess what? If you break the law, then a Gentile who obeys the law is better than you. And he's, he's your judge, right? So he's flipping all these standards on their heads because people were very much trusting in their DNA, their lineage, their works, you know, which which can't save you. It's your faith and trust in Christ that saves you. But that's a new paradigm. At the writing of this letter, this was a vastly new paradigm. So we have to remember that. But this is where Paul is basically saying, you know, it's not your flesh or lineage determines if you're saved or not, i.e. part of Israel, but it's your faith. He's not openly stating yet, but he's building the case. Now we look later in Romans 9, he develops this idea quite a bit further. In Romans 9, 8 through 13, we read about this a little bit. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And he goes on to talk about Ishmael. He goes on to talk about Esau, who were both rejected. Both Ishmael and Esau were circumcised, and they were rejected, right? And this is, this is very important. He also says in verse uh, 14 through 23, he talks about uh, what shall we... What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So he's He's building this whole case of election. Now, this is a very important verse if you reject predestination because, I mean, so he, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he ever wills and he hardens whom ever he wills. This is a fundamental teaching of the Bible. God does whatever he wants. He hardens who he wants to harden. He has mercy on who he has mercy. He stops people from sinning in the Old Testament. He moves them around. He gives them a new heart. He hardens them like Pharaoh. God is sovereign. And in this example here, he Paul also talks about Uh, vessels, like verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, i.e. the reprobate, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So again, verse, chapter nine, what is he doing? He's building the case for election. He just flipped on chapter two, flipped the whole paradigm on its head that, listen, just because you're Jew doesn't mean you're saved. Dun, dun, dun. (gasps) You know, cue the dramatic music. Very dramatic. Now in chapter nine, he's reminding them like, well, what about Esau? What about um, Ishmael? They're both circumcised, but God rejected them. He chose Jacob. That was his electing purpose before they were ever born, he says. The younger will serve the the older will serve the younger. So God's electing purpose has been constantly throughout history, even within the nation of Israel. So he's starting to bring that in. Now then he talks about the, the vessels for honorable use and dishonorable use. The quote that he gave to Moses, he's gonna have mercy on who So he's building this entire case that God is sovereign over who gets saved. Not Your lineage, your DNA, not anything that you do. These are vastly different paradigms. It's a vastly different paradigm. And of course, in verse 25 and 26, he quotes Hosea. As indeed he says in in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So he's quoting Hosea. Now, Hosea was written in the Old Testament. It was written to the Israelites. And now Paul is applying it to warn ethnic Israel as in regards to this Jew-Gentile issue with the gospel. Do you see how he's building a case for a vastly new theology? Very different, that it's not so exclusive to the nation of Israel, but actually to the Israel of God, the conglomerate spiritual reality. So all Israel, what is what is the point now? Paul has been building and building and building. He's building it in other letters too, but specifically in Romans. He's been building this case. It's not about being Jewish. God's sovereign electing purpose. And then Romans 11, he finally explains the mechanism for that purpose, specifically how basically the Jews were determined by God to reject Christ so that the gospel could go to the nations. Christ would be crucified, obviously, because of their rejection. And that's what we needed. We needed the propitiation. So the Jews had to reject Christ. It was all predestined. Acts 4, 26 through 28. The cross was predestined. So, of course, if you predestine the cross, you also have to predestine the people who reject him, meaning the evil people, like the Pharisees. So Paul explains all this election and and all these things. And in chapter 11, he reveals the mystery, the mystery of Israel's salvation. What's the mystery? Well, the mystery is that God sovereignly determined... Israel to reject Christ, and therefore the gospel would go out to the nations, the Gentiles, the Gentiles would be grafted in because of that, and Abraham's prom- the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations will be fulfilled that way in Christ. And then the elect Jews, who are part of the, the remnant of Israel, the ones who are going to be saved, because God's purpose has not stopped with the ethnic nation of Israel, those people will see that and respond with jealousy and want to join and be reconciled to God with this new thing that's happening. That's the mystery of Israel's salvation. And when you read it in context of all the things that Paul has written in Romans, what he says with all Israel is like the capstone. It's the, you know, the cherry on the icing, or I should say the cherry on the sundae. It's like the, you know, the the, the climax is what I wanted to say, not capstone, but the climax of this entire case being built. So in this way, all Israel will be saved, meaning all the elect of this new spiritual reality will be saved through all the things that I I just mentioned. And you don't understand what all Israel means unless he builds a case that election is the sovereign determining factor of salvation. Not your ethnic background, not anything you do like obeying the law. It's God's sovereign choice that ties it all together. But if all Israel is something else, it's completely incoherent. Now, number five, and the final point of this is having to do with the fact that God fulfills his promises. And again, the big question that Romans 11 begins with is, has God failed Israel? Is God not having a purpose anymore for the Jews? And of course, the answer answer is no. He still has a purpose. But if all Israel is just the elect of Israel, then the chapter could have stopped it a few verses in after he mentions that there's a remnant. Okay, there's a remnant, end of story. No need to go into more theology. So it's not the elect of Israel, meaning the nation of Israel. If all Israel is the nation of Israel, again, we're going back to the usual interpretation of this, God is letting countless Jews die throughout history just to have a revival at the last minute that doesn't that doesn't jive with the idea that all israel will be saved basically through most of history most israel is not saved meaning ethnic israel right now the nation of israel just to have a revival at the end of the age that doesn't jive with the idea that all israel will be saved most ethnic jews have not been saved throughout history we know that is this now is this teaching some sort of particular universalism meaning like universalism, but just for the Jews? All the Jews are going to be saved? Well, how does that work? Like, is every Jew saved? This hasn't happened. So you see, it's inconsistent. Now, premillennialism, specifically, everybody who believes in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ in Jerusalem in the future, deals with this problem by saying, well, there's a 1,000 years, and so that's going to be lots of time for the Jews to basically come back to, to faith in Christ. And so all these Jews that you know, that would basically—basically, if you have no millennial kingdom, you're really, you know, out of luck here, because a last-minute revival by no means means all of Israel. That's a very small percentage of Israel. So, you need a millennial kingdom to say, well, you need a thousand years, and that way there's a lot more Jews that come to saving faith in Christ, and so it kind of evens out. So, yeah, it is all Israel. But millennial kingdom— Again, still, how many people died throughout history out of ethnic Israel that rejected Christ? Countless. Mo- the majority of them. And if you have a millennial kingdom, if you I should say, if you don't have a millennial kingdom, which we've proven, there is no future physical millennial kingdom. There may be a counterfeit one, absolutely. Not throwing that off the table. But there's no physical reign of Christ in Jerusalem for a thousand years. So if that's not the case, then you really have a lot of problems with this explanation. It's just unsatisfactory any which way you cut it. But if we reject premillennialism, if we reject dispensationalism, postmillennialism, all these things that rely on some sort of millennium, being in a physical sense, and we see that the millennium is now, it's a spiritual reality where Christ is king already, ruling in heaven while his enemies are being put under his feet, then we see a lot of other things come together. In Romans 11, verse 2 through 3, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Remember in the very beginning I told you to pay attention to that? Foreknowledge, very important. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, and of course he quotes the thing about Elijah. This is talking about the elect in Israel, not the nation. And we know that foreknowledge is salvific, meaning it's it saves. It's not talking about just I don't know, any kind of regular knowledge, because in earlier in Romans, chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a golden chain of redemption, it's called, because basically everything is tied together. And so foreknowledge is salvific, meaning if if God foreknew you, He knew you before time began, that's an electing purpose that He had for you. He predestined you to be saved. He predestined you to come to knowledge, to the knowledge of Christ by revealing the truth to you. He didn't do that for everybody. So if you genuinely have a relationship with Christ, be grateful and marvel at that mystery, because it is a mystery. But if we reject premillennialism and postmillennialism and all these other things when we read this idea of foreknowledge in the very beginning of Romans 11 we see that it is talking about this the proof is the, the proof that god is not done with his purposes in israel is because he hasn't rejected the people he's foreknown i.e. the elect all being one of them, he's one of he's like the chief example. He's like, look, I'm an example of this. Now, it's very important. Election in terms of the remnant is cited precisely in this first couple verses in chapter in chapter eleven in Romans to prove God's glory and sovereignty over salvation. If God had saved, again, I'm going to say this one more time. This is probably a very, very important point without, throughout this whole series, this whole um, presentation. If God had, reg- uh, had saved all of ethnic Israel, then it would not be by grace. Do you see why election is necessary? Because again, it puts it on God. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who gets the credit. It's all on him. It's his decision. It's not... Oh, I happen to be born in Israel, so I'm circumcised and I'm saved, which is what the Jews believed at the time. Some of the Jews, most of the Jews still believe that today. But anyway, God chose people to be saved within Israel, the remnant. That's why Paul is citing it here. And he's saying, those who he foreknew, meaning, remember, this is about election. It's about God's predestined purpose, not about your lineage or your bloodline. It's about God's sovereign choice. The remnant in Israel proved that God's purpose isn't frustrated. He has a, his purpose will stand. if God had if it was about all Israel to be saved, right? And it, so if this is talking about foreknowledge of all Israel, people he foreknew, meaning he chose Israel in some generic sense, then his purpose has been frustrated because most Israel has not been saved. But Paul here is talking about the remnant within Israel because he's trying to make a point that God is that salvation is by God's choice alone, not by your lineage, not by your works, not by anything. This is very important. So the, the remnant and the point of foreknowledge and election is mentioned to bolster the idea that this is a sovereign decision of God. God is sovereign over salvation. It's not cited as a proof that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. This is, this is so important. When he says in Romans eleven two 2, verse 3, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. How do you read that? Do you read that as, well, no, 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 God has not rejected Israel because Israel's is the the chosen people, is the chosen nation, so he still has a plan for them. That's the dispensationalist way of reading it but that's not the way that you should read it. That's not the truth. When, when Paul uses the word foreknew, just a couple of chapters earlier, remember, he's building the case throughout Romans. Just a couple of chapters earlier in Romans 8, verse 29, and in the golden chain of redemption. Foreknowledge relates to predestination, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to justification. It's the golden chain of redemption. Foreknowledge is election. It is a sovereign Choice of God to save people unconditionally—that's the whole point. If it was if it was Israel, then it would be conditional. See the point? God chose Israel as a nation to bring about the Messiah to typify physical things for spiritual things, but not everybody in that nation was saved. Most people weren't. See the point? And why? God, why Paul is bringing it up? Paul is bringing it up to remind people that God is sovereign and that He, yes, He still has a purpose. For Israel but that purpose is by election it's not that the whole nation is going to be saved Israel has a purpose but that purpose is now part of something greater the olive tree is not just Israel there are branches that are grafted in from other trees there are branches that were broken off and then grafted back in the tree itself is what matters that's the Israel of God everybody's part of the tree now but who's, who determines who's part of the tree? It's God. Remember the, the parable of the vine and the vine dresser? Who's, who's the vine? Jesus. Who's the vine dresser? The Father. What does the scripture say? The Father draws people to Christ. The Father is the one who chose and gave them to Christ. It all makes it so consistent. So who's the one breaking the branches? It's God. God's breaking the branches and grafting people, and that's his sovereign choice to do so. And that's what Paul is trying to teach here. It's a spiritual reality that, again, requires you to think outside of physical limitations and obvious things. So Israel is the tree. Israel is the promise. You can relate that to Christ as well because, again, the body of Christ is the church. It's the temple. It's all the same thing. There's just different pictures for the same reality, which is a fellowship with Christ and with each other in a new communion and a new relationship. And of course, the church is also the body of believers who are both Jew and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles are part of this new reality. Everybody is part of it. That doesn't mean everybody as in the whole world. I mean, all kinds of people. I will draw all people to myself. Remember, did Jesus mean he's going to save everybody? No. He means all kinds of people. All kinds of people will be drawn to Christ. And this is true. There's a lot of different kinds of people because God made all of them and he's going to redeem all kinds of people to be his people. God's promises are fulfilled. This is very important. Not by redeeming the nation of Israel, the political nation, but by keeping the tree alive despite changing the branches. What is the promise? The promise is that Abraham's offspring and Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. That is fulfilled in Christ. And remember what Paul said about offspring and all offspring, making that distinction, again, between physical and spiritual, two vastly different things. And he's been building this case throughout Romans to expand the understanding that offspring and Israel and who is a Jew and who is... You know, part of the, who's circumcised, really circumcised. All these things are spiritual realities that have to do with God's sovereign electing purpose. It's by faith, and that faith is according to God's choice to make you believe or not. You can't believe on your own. You find the cross foolishness. The world finds the cross foolishness. And of course, everybody does until God opens your eyes. God's eternal purpose never involved the saving of every ethnic Jew. Very important. Israel was always a type and shadow for the future reality of the Messiah and his people. All the leaders of Israel, the priests, the kings, the prophets, they're all types and shadows for Christ leading his people, which would be a new reality. It's a spiritual reality. It's not limited by DNA or or physical things. Israel also had a lot of apostasy and that never affected God's promises because God's promise wasn't based on God didn't limit himself to something so mundane as the nation of Israel. God's promises had to do with faith and a people that he chose for himself. It's his choice. Do you see how all of this ties together? Because otherwise, if this does deal with the nation of Israel, when Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, as in, oh, don't worry, there's still a plan for the entire nation of Israel. Well, (laughs) good luck. I mean, the nation of Israel has apostatized over and over again. They're still apostate. So does that mean God's plan has been frustrated? Well, according to that reading, it is. But we know that God's plans don't get frustrated. But if it's by election, which is what Paul has labored, you know, over and over again throughout this entire letter to prove and to demonstrate, to make a case for, then God's plan has not been frustrated. Those who God has chosen are saved and will come to Christ, and those who God has not chosen will be hardened, and they'll play a part in bringing those other ones to be saved. Do you see how that works? Very, very interesting. But a couple of final thoughts on this I want you to take home is that Romans 11 is the culmination of a new theology. It's a culmination of a new theology on the who the people of God really are. It's very, very important who are the people of God? Is it just the Jews? No, it's not. It's a spiritual conglomerate of Jew and Gentile, all kinds of people that are united in faith in Christ. That is the new reality of the gospel. And again, if you're dispensationalist and you believe in all the things that dispensationalists believe in, you bring division where the gospel unites. The gospel is about unity in Christ, whereas dispensationalism teaches separation between Jew and Gentile, very much so. So we have to align with the gospel. But Paul talks about the identity of the true Israel in many of his other letters, too. We looked at that in Colossians, in Galatians, in Philippians, in Ephesians. So he, he makes a constant theme throughout his letters to deal with this new reality being a conglomerate reality. And he uses the language as if he's referring to the nation of Israel, but it's actually a conglomerate reality. Now, we also know that this letter is dealing with present times, right? Because of all the timestamps that we looked at in the very beginning, this is a present time issue. Present reality for Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles is not something in the future. Thousands of years later, this is very much an active thing unfolding that Paul is part of, that Paul hopes to be impactful with. It's very much in the present moment. And we know that Paul wants the Gentiles to do several things. He wants them to not repeat the same mistakes that the Jews had in their thinking, that they're the chosen people and they're favorited by God because of some sort of fleshly reason. So he's reminding them, listen, you're by faith and because God is sovereign in, in choosing, your faith is not your own. So don't don't be arrogant, but be fearful. Also, don't disrespect your fellow Jews because that's not going to help them, the elect Jews, come to Christ. When you treat them with love, they're going to see the blessings that you have, the new heart that you have, the new life that you have, and they're going to come to Christ. And I think this applies today as well. That has applied throughout the ages. Instead of supporting the Jews to build a third temple and to offer sacrifices, which is an abomination to God, we should be supporting Jews with the gospel. We should be evangelizing to Israel God forbid, right? I mean, look at this dispensationalist, how how dispensationalism teaches you that because there's this revival and there's going to be this millennium which doesn't exist, where all this revival is going to happen, we don't need to vent. Ev- we want to support Israel to build their third temple so the Antichrist can come. Do you see how totally misguided this is? I mean, whatever happened to evangelizing in every part of the world, especially the part of the world that needs it, the most, I think, because they're so hardened, so hardened to their own Messiah, which is just fascinating. But that's the plan of God. And that was the plan that God ordained from the very beginning. But he's trying to tell them, look, don't, don't play a Don't think that you're favorited. Be humble and treat Jews with kindness. Bring them into the gospel with your, with your kindness make them jealous. Basically, that's, that's the idea. And those who are going to be saved from the nation of Israel will be saved. They will see what they've been missing out. And that's going to be a work of God. We know that Paul's language is very much in the current time. He says now at the present time, several times, Paul lists himself as an example, as proof of God's plan unfolding in the current time, not at some point in the future. Paul uses foreknowledge, so he's making a case for election throughout the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, and that foreknowledge is pointing to the fact that God is sovereign over the plan of salvation. It's used as an example to remind people that God is sovereign over over salvation, not that God has a plan for every ethnic Jew because that isn't the the case historically, nor is it the case in the gospel. God's electing purpose is some people in the nation of Israel, like the remnant, and a lot of Gentiles. But election, it comes down to election. God's sovereign choice to save people. It's his choice. It's all on him, and, and glory goes to him. Otherwise, it would not be based on grace, and it wouldn't be based on on God. It would be based on physical things like, oh, God played favorites with people who are ethnically Abraham, which is very much not the case. We also know that Paul's dealing with current realities for a lot of other things. You know, the current ministry that he hopes to fulfill by grafting the Gentiles in and making the Jews jealous. All these things are just current realities that Paul is dealing with. They're not end times related at all. But I'll give a big asterisk here. Paul and the apostles did believe that the They were living in the last days. So for them, these were the last days. They didn't know how much longer the earth was going to be around. They had no idea. They knew that these were the last days because Satan had been thrown down to earth. We talked about this in the binding of Satan. This is it. This is the last days. Christ has come, and he's going to come back to judge. A lot of the apostles believed that there was an imminency to Christ's return, even though there had to be things to be fulfilled. So ultimately they did believe they were in the final days. So in some sense, they this does have an eschatological view that, okay, we need to get the gospel out to the Gentiles. We need to graft these people in because we're in the final days. There was an imminency to it. But it's not talking about the final days as in the future, like thousands of years from where they were talking about. It's not talking about that at all. And I hope that that's been clear to you so far because this is a present reality. It's talking about the beauty of election of God's sovereign purpose in salvation and how he's chosen people throughout history to be saved and hardened others, which makes us grateful for our own salvation. It makes us grateful for our own, you know, status with God, our own relationship. And of course, Paul and a lot of the other apostles talk a lot about having assurance of salvation, confirming your election. Faith without works is dead, obviously, right? So ultimately, we... We there's this duality, it's a mystery, just like the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery is the mystery of the fact that we have choices and we we make choices, we experience life through moments, but then at the same time God is working through us through the Holy Spirit through his sovereign electing purpose. How does that work? I don't know, it's a mystery, but it gives us assurance of salvation. We know that it's all glory to him and we have all the peace. But if it's up to you, Or if it's something based on you, it's no longer grace. And again, this is a whole other can of worms. But look, if you can choose to be, to have faith, that means you can choose to stop having faith. That means you can lose your salvation. And that means that God cannot keep those saved whom he chooses to save. There's a lot of problems with that. So again, this is more about the current unfolding of the Jew-Gentile problem. And it's also about election. Paul has built this case throughout Romans. God's purpose was never about the ethnic nation of Israel. That is the entire point of him citing election, of him citing the thing that happened with Elijah, the remnant. God is, or Paul is citing those things. Well, God, the Holy Spirit, I guess, through Paul, that works too. But Paul is citing these examples, not to say that the whole nation of Israel is saved, that God is still playing favorites. Now, of course, that God didn't play favorites. He chose a nation, but within that nation, there was a lot of people that he left to to not be saved. He had a remnant. He always had a remnant. But this is not saying... So Paul is not using the, the remnant example and all of the things that he just spoke about the election to say, well, you see, God still has a purpose for the nation of Israel. This is a false teaching. Absolutely false in so many ways. In fact, it's the opposite meaning. He's saying... Look, there were people in Israel that God didn't save. Look at Elijah and the remnant. Look at Esau. Look at uh, Ishmael. They were circumcised, but God rejected them. He's building the case with with the remnant just for the exact reason to humble the Jews and to basically flip the script on its head. Do you see that? Do you see the point here? Like one is taking this completely out of context and reading into it what it's not. That oh, the remnant of Israel. Oh, that means that. There you go. There's going to be the nation of Israel. God still has a plan for them. No. He's saying, for the very reason that there is an elect, the nation of Israel is not going to be saved. God doesn't have a plan for the nation of Israel. God has a plan for his elect. Are some of those elect in the nation of Israel? Yes. I, Paul, am an example. But don't think that just because you're Israel, political Israel in brackets, that you're going to be saved. That's the thing that he's constantly addressing. So, remember also, look, remember some other important things before we check out. No place in Paul's writing, in any other place, talks about a future revival of the Jews. There's just no, there's no restoration of political Israel. There's no restoration of the Jews. There's no great revival in any of Paul's writing anywhere. If this was that significant of a, of a thing, we should expect to see it in other places especially since he wrote on the Jew-Gentile problem quite a bit. There's no other place that says anything like that. There's nothing like that in Daniel, the book of Daniel. It talks about the little horn, the sanctuary, the trotting on the saints, nothing. In fact, in Daniel, remember the very beginning of this episode, we talked about how the Daniel 12, the resurrection, there's some people are going to be raised to contempt and destruction. Would Did Daniel have Gentiles in mind at that point? No he was thinking of Jews and Israelites. This was for the Israelites. That means that even at that time, they were aware that some people were going to be, you know, resurrected to shame and destruction. Because just because you're Israel doesn't mean you're Israel. You see how that works? But there's no place like that in Revelation. Of course, we looked at the 144,000 briefly, but that's Again, those are symbolic things you can't read. This is an error with dispensationalism. They see everything so fleshly and physical that, you know, you just, you lose sense of everything and you just make this hodgepodge of a, of a theory that's based on physical obvious things. But dispensationalism has been refuted over and over, not just by me in this series, but by so many people. Pre- and post-millennialism is refuted. There's no millennial kingdom. Please, if this is your first time looking at this or listening to it, go back to those previous episodes. Check out the episode on, I mean, they're all good. They're all going to edify you, but, you know, the the episode on the temple, the episode on Abraham's promises, those are some key ones to do with Israel. And you can see that this whole dispensationalist teaching and this hyper-focused on Zionist Israel is completely unwarranted. That's not what the gospel is teaching. Of course, preterism is also refuted. So the only real option is that the millennium is now. That's a spiritual millennium. And if that's the case, then we read things very, very differently. It makes much more sense that Paul is dealing with current events in his time and the unfolding of the gospel and trying to build a case for this new reality of how God is saving both Jew and Gentile. What's his mechanism for it? Well, it's election, but election comes with reprobation and salvation. Some people he passes over and hardens, and some people he has mercy on. And so he's built this entire case to explain what's happening. Like, look, some of the Jews are hardened, and that's for a very important purpose, because God's going to use that to bring the gospel to the nations. And then, don't worry, he still has a purpose for Israel— in the sense that there are elect in Israel, not the nation of Israel, but there are elect in Israel. I'm one of them, Paul. And those people will come and and see because they're going to be jealous of this new thing. And God's going to make sure of that. He's going to convict their hearts and he's going to convert them and bring them to the gospel. And all Israel in this manner will be saved. Do you see how that makes so much more sense? It's a, it's a current event type of thing. It's not talking about some future reality that Paul is foreseeing a political re-restoration of a political nation of Israel. It's thousands of years in the future. I mean, that just makes no sense. It really doesn't, especially since the context doesn't support you with that. The context of Paul's entire book of Romans, the, the context of the other letters that, that he wrote... Concerning this same exact problem, like Ephesians, when he talks about the mystery of the gospel versus the mystery of uh, the salvation of Israel, Israel being all Israel. And of course, he's using multiple meanings. So, look, context, context, context. I know this has been a little bit longer, but this is a very tricky verse. And when you read it, and especially if somebody is trying to convince you of dispensationalist ideas, it's, it's very dangerous in the sense because it on face value, it does seem that that's talking about, well, sure, it makes sense. Yeah, God's had a chosen people and they're probably still the chosen people. Well, no, that's not what the gospel is saying. Not what Paul is saying. And we need to understand context. If you understand election, if you understand Paul's writings, how he uses words like all and how he uses words like Israel, even how he refers to election, how he refers to all these things, then it makes completely a new meaning. And that meaning makes much more sense. and It's much more beautiful, frankly, than something like a future revival of the Jews in Israel. There is no future revival of the Jews in Israel. There are elect Jews that are going to come to the gospel, but I will say this one more time. They are right now trying to coordinate a false fulfillment of the end times prophecies. I've talked about this many times. And... If that's the case, you may see this whole charismatic renewal that's happening in the United States, which we looked at in the counterfeit spirit episode, you may see something like that being broadcast to Israel. And people are going to say, look, it's the revival that the Bible speaks about. And everybody's going to, you know, the Israel's coming to the gospel. It's going to be a huge revival. It's all going to be charismatic because this is taking the world by storm now. And... It's a false revival, just like there are many false revivals even today, but I'm not going to comment on that. Nevertheless, God always has an electing purpose, but if you start seeing these things, I would have a very uh, scrutinizing eye about them, because otherwise it's very easy to be deceived into thinking that Bible prophecy is being fulfilled, and they will probably do something like that. But who knows? Again, just use discernment. Use discernment, read context. I hope this has been edifying for you. I'm going to put some resources um, in the comments for this episode, some great theological articles. They're a little bit a little bit heavy, a little bit uh, harder to read if, if you have trouble reading these things, but I'm going to put some great resources for you to consult some more reasonable perspectives on this issue that don't have to do with an end times interpretation that makes a wild theory of of Israel's revival and rather it's much more practical much more down to earth and much more beautiful because it talks about God's sovereign electing purpose and i think that in the end the enemy has always tried to twist God's word to hide God's purposes and that's why i think this whole dispensationalist teaching even people who aren't dispensationalists who believe that there's a future revival it's designed to hide what the bible is truly what paul is trying to say here which is election predestination. God will have his purpose that's not going to be fulfilled. God does not play favorites. God has his people that he's chosen, but those people he's chosen unconditionally. So there's no partiality with God. And what does that mean? Well, if he's chosen people unconditionally, it's about grace. It is about grace, and therefore he gets all the glory, we get all the peace. And that's a beautiful thing. But if you believe and you're focused on future revival of the Jews, you miss that in this chapter. You think this is about the Jewish nation of Israel, when in reality it's about God and his sovereign choice. So I hope this has been edifying for you. Next week I'm looking forward to starting that series on the Trinity. So make sure you tune in, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We're gonna look at a lot of great things in the Trinity. A lot of people are starting to question the Trinity, it seems like. So another motivation for me was to create a very deep, deep dive into the Trinity throughout history, throughout a lot of different things in scripture, the testimony of the words of Christ, of the apostles. We're going to look at a lot of really interesting things to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is indeed triune. So, until next time, have a great, wonderful day, wherever you happen to be, and God bless. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.